Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Dave Burden. I'm the pastor uh, at the Creep Hall uh, congregation. Uh, if you're here in person, uh, you're here uh, for the first time uh, in six months, uh, which seems utterly surreal. Um, but for those of you uh, who are doing home church, uh, we are excited uh, about that as well, or whether you're just uh, viewing online, welcome. And um, we're starting this new series, so I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us. Um, but it really doesn't it feel like so much is new right now. Um, like this is new, and sitting at home uh, is new. And uh, even speaking to pastors around uh, Nashville a little bit, sorry, my mic. We good? Better? Okay. Uh, one of the themes that I'm hearing from people uh, is this, that it almost feels like everyone's replanting their churches. That everything feels like it's starting uh, from scratch in some ways. And I've had plenty of time over the last uh, months uh, to be at home with my kids. We have four little kids. A little girl uh, is the youngest, two. Her name is Lane. And a lot of time on the floor building things with Lane. And I'm trying to teach her right now as we build block towers that your foundation is pretty important, right? That if your foundation isn't good, uh, you're only going to get so far uh, in your block tower. I don't know if she's fully caught on yet, but what I'm about to read is something profoundly foundational. Um, and so I hope you, uh, you came re ready to have some concrete truth poured into your foundation this morning uh, so that as we leave today or as you go out from your home church or, or online today, uh, the Lord will really strengthen you for the week ahead, okay? So this is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, apply this word to our hearts. Holy Spirit, um, and we don't, we don't just uh, try to pick this apart with our own minds. We need you, Lord, to illuminate this. Um, use whatever words you give me right now uh, to help this truth explode uh, for us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so what I just read, um, I really would encourage you to think of it, like I said, as a, as a foundational truth. Um, and really, what I just read is ultimately something uh, from the very beginning of the Bible that teaches us about our identity. Like if uh, we were to go on Ancestry.com, I know many of you have probably done something like that to kind of trace your roots. We're tracing our roots all the way back. You can't get much earlier than Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And what is being talked about here later in the Bible, it gets referred to as something which we'll be talking about over the next five weeks, which is the priesthood of the believer, Okay. It's talking about what does it mean that we all, male and female, are priests in the kingdom of God, okay? It's talking about the biblical reality that regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, 
regardless of your race, your occupation, your vocation, whatever you do throughout the day, regardless of that, all believers, all who are in Christ, have a baseline identity. We have a baseline, a foundational role to play in God's creation and with one another, and one that reflects him as priest. That's what Jonathan read at the very beginning, right? I'll read it again. You are a royal priesthood. This is 1 Peter 2.9, how Peter describes this. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession, that we might, and this is why, you might declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into his glorious light. So that priestly role, it's not just a role for one person, it's not just a role for men or just a role for women, it's, it's the southern form of the Greek verb all y'all, Right? That's what's happening here. We're all priests. That's what Scripture's saying right here in Genesis 1, and we'll unpack that here in a second, but I want you to just think with me for a second. What do y'all think about when you think about a priest? You're like, Dave, I haven't thought about a priest. Uh, I don't know when the last time I did. What do you think about? Like maybe some of you have very little context uh, for that. Maybe some of you uh, grew up in a religious tradition and you have a ton of context for that. Uh, rarely, I mean, I'm, I'm in, I've got a junior hire and a two-year-old. I've got two junior hires. So the junior hires were beginning to kind of discuss life and kind of what do you think you're going to end up being and what are your interests. And uh, I rarely hear a junior high kid saying, I hope to grow up and be a priest, right? That's not one of the top vocations. But what do you think of? Maybe, maybe movies have informed this for you. I'm, I'm of the generation of Princess Bride. I realize even just bringing that movie up might be a risk right now. How many people have actually seen, yeah? Oh, okay. Good. I couldn't tell by your mouths because uh, I can't see them. We're going to have to work on like eye, like <laughs> big eyes mean like good or like this is like I don't understand what you're saying, okay? So, you know, Princess Bride, the guy that says, you know, marriage, or maybe uh, the guy from Wedding Crashers who's kind of aloof and goofy and never says anything. When I think of a priest, oftentimes I think of like giant hats, robes, stoic, relationally very uninvolved, kind of cold and removed. Maybe somebody who, who sits in a room behind a sliding window and receives, you know, your confession but that isn't the picture that Scripture gives us. That's not what we just read, right? Right from the beginning and in the beginning, we see something very, very different. That God created man and woman to bear his image in this way as priests over the temple of his creation. As priests over the temple of his creation and man and woman would be the chief tenders and developers of this garden and of this world that he had made. Priests had been set apart. They were holy. They were treasured to do God's unique work in and for his creation. Uh, one of my favorite authors and, and pastor, a guy named Paul Tripp, says it like this. Priests make the grace of the invisible king visible. It's a good way to think of it. They make the grace of the invisible king visible because priests had this unique opportunity, different than the rest of all of creation, to be close to the Lord. 
They had his face. They could be face to face with him. They had this unique relationship. And as a result of having this unique relationship, they had the capacity now to help others draw close, to represent and reflect the Lord to the world in a unique way. So a few things we're gonna kind of pull apart as we go through this passage. First one is this. I'll try to make these somewhat concise and, and flow. God the gardener and, and Adam and Eve, I guess, were his co-gardeners. That's point one. Second thing we'll talk about is Christ the Redeemer because something went wrong, right? And then thirdly, uh, and we'll kind of get into this, but we'll be getting into this over the next handful of weeks. We the priests, okay? God the gardener. Christ the Redeemer, and we the priests. Okay, first thing, God the gardener and Adam and Eve, his co-gardeners, right? Prior to what I just read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where the Trinity, uh, the Godhead, is having this conversation and saying, let us make man in our image. Prior to all of that, verses 1 to 25 of Genesis, if you go and read that account of creation, I'd encourage you, go read it. What we find, the picture that we have given us of God here is God who is a creator, but he's a specific type of creator. He's this creator gardener, right? That by the power of his word, he is literally speaking the world into existence and he's taking what was in the very beginning of Genesis, it says this, in the beginning, he's creating the heavens and the earth, God is, and the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface, surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. At the very beginning, everything is, is void and it's formless, it's empty, there's, there's nothing. And to a Jewish reader, to somebody who would have been reading that in the day, they would have understood that as like chaos. There's, there's total disorder. And what we see going on is God taking things from chaos and disorder and he's, he's bringing about order and then ultimately moving from order into fullness, right? He's saying I'm bringing about light and water and sky and land and all sorts of living creatures. And at the end of every one of these days, he's like, it's good. It's good. It's good. And then eventually what we read, which is the creation of man and woman. And what does he say at the end of that? He said, it's very good. It's unique. <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all good, Right? It's all good, but man, this, this is special, this is unique. You see, just in these first 30 verses of Genesis 1, we go from nothingness, from emptiness, from void, from formless, to intimacy. This is what he's about. God dwelling with man in his temple, which was his creation, and the pinnacle of that, the picture the scripture gives us the pinnacle of that was Eden, right? And the garden within Eden. Eden, you know, wasn't only a garden, but there was a garden within Eden. It was like the VIP section at a concert, right? The VIP area of Eden was the Garden of Eden. It's like the, the Holy of Holies. If you've studied any of the rest of scripture later on, you know, there's this place in the temple where only the high priest can go, right? One guy, one time a year. The Holy of Holies where God's unique presence dwelled. And that's the picture we have of Eden here. It's the Holy of Holies, right? The place where man and woman can go and dwell with the Lord. And he put Adam and Eve there to work. Not to chill, not to hang out in hammocks, right? Or do whatever you do. He put them there to work. It says in Genesis 2.15, he put them 
in Eden to cultivate and to keep it. It's the same words, if you look in the rest of the Old Testament, that the priests were supposed to do with the temple work. I'm, I'm here to cultivate and to keep and to serve the Lord in this place, in Eden, this garden of delight. Eden means delight. So you're in, you're, you've been placed in this place to cultivate and to keep this garden of delight and to bring other people, usher other people into the garden. Usher other people into my joy, into my delight, into my presence. Adam, Eve, go, bring forth more beauty, bring forth more order, bring forth more fullness for everyone. Right? That was the plan from the beginning. Man and woman, our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, you know, I'd have to say it many more times to get there, right? Adam and Eve, to, to be image bearers and to labor as the Lord did, to represent him with his attitudes, his affections, his consciousness, his ethics, his loves, his character, and to be about his work. It's my identity. It's your identity if you're a Christian. Maybe you've, um, I was praying about whether I was going to tell this story um, because we are uniquely created from the Lord, f- from Him and for Him in this way, He breathed life into our nostrils. We are to bear a family resemblance. I bet if I got out pictures of all y'all um, and saw your parents, right, we could say like, oh, you know, people say like, oh, you have your mother's eyes or oh, you have your father's gait when you walk or whatever, right? So I'm adopted and uh, about six years ago, I met my birth parents for the first time. I met my birth mother first, and then my birth father later. And I remember the day my birth mother drove into my driveway. It's kind of an interesting thing to be like, that's my birth mother. Uh, I'm about to meet you. And she got out of the car, and when she got out of the car, she did this with her hands. <laughs> now, the guy... That was Christopher Williams, those of you watching at home, the guy who just laughed, knows me that when I get excited, I do this with my hands. I've done it since I was a little kid. My friends at home would tease me about it all the time, and I saw her do it when she got out of the car. And I looked at her, and I said, what did you just do with your hands? It was the first thing I said to her. <laughs> and she said, oh, it's just this thing I do when I get excited and I'm nervous, and I was just kind of like, oh, my goodness. Here's this woman that I've never met who birthed me into the world. And I bear the resemblance. Why? Because I'm uniquely from her. Right? That's the picture. We're uniquely from him. We're uniquely set apart by him to have this role to reflect him and to continue his work in the world. If you're wondering, and trust me, people are wondering right now about purpose and identity, good gravy. If you're wondering, and if you're struggling to wonder, what, what's my purpose in life? It has nothing to do implicitly with your job. Your job is the place that you lived out your purpose. <laughs> and you have a baseline purpose that's different than whatever field you're going into or you do. And it's this, I am here to reflect the Lord in all things. I'm here to bear his image. As a mom, or as a doctor, or as a lawyer, or as whatever, right? This is the plan. God the gardener and and Adam and Eve and us as the co-gardeners. But we all know about Genesis chapter 3, right? 
I mean, it's like, have you ever blown it your first week at work and gotten fired? Anybody? No? Golly, you guys are just two high achievers, I guess. <laughs> you know? First week on the job and you just, you drop the ball and they're like, yeah, I don't think it's going to work anymore. Well, that's what happens in chapter 3, right? What we see in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They eat from the tree they were forbidden to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their sin severely broke. We didn't lose it all, but man, we lost a lot. It severely broke our image-bearing capacity, right? I can't bear the image of the Lord in the way that I was designed to bear because of sin in my life. Before Christ ultimately said sin ruled and sin reigned, I, I, I was a priest of a different kingdom, right? Sin broke our capacity to bear the image and it broke all of creation. Romans 8 literally says that all of creation, because of what Adam and Eve did, is subject to bondage and decay. He, they broke our ability, our capacity to keep this mandate this mandate to subdue and take dominion and to cultivate and to keep, right? And it, it did something even, even worse than just broke our ability to keep it. It twisted it. It twisted it and perverted that mandate and focused it. And it twisted it from this. Instead of for the good of the world and to the glory of God, my life, my mandate became simply for the good of myself. Like think about these words for a second. Just if I were to read this list of words to you out loud, subdue, rule, dominate, or dominion. What are the definitions that come to your mind? I mean, when I, when I was meditating on these words, I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar with those words. But almost all of the context I have culturally for those words are this. Um, I subdue and I rule and I dominate for my own gain, for my own agenda, for my own superiority, for my own control and my own self. I mean, I don't think we have to look any further, and I'm not going to do a deep dive into this, but look at our political climate right now. Right? Did you watch any of the parties' conventions? I'm sure you're seeing things on social media, right? And all the fodder there. What I see primarily is this, that most of the rhetoric is often more about beating the other person, right? Beating the other party. Rather than, hey, let me tell you what we want to do for the people that we're actually serving. You see the difference? You see how subdue and rule and dominate under the fall and the fruit of the fall takes those words that we were designed for and twists them and perverts them. And our identity, instead of, uh, of being priests in this new kingdom, our identity, let's just talk for a second politically, our identity is about having an enemy, right? Rather than a shared love. It's about having a common enemy, something we want to tear down, not cultivate and keep, rather than a shared love. What sin does, sin literally puts the man in mandate. Wow, 
crackle. It puts the man in mandate rather than focusing on the giver of the mandate and the good of those and for whom it was given for. I was watching um, a movie uh, on a flight a few, it was about a month ago, and I, I hate starting movies on flights because a lot of times you don't get to finish the movie, and then you're like, what happened on that movie? And then you actually have to go rent it, and it was free on Southwest, right? So bummed. But I'm glad I went and rented it because uh, it, it typifies what I'm talking about here with, these, with the way that we kind of, our, our mandate gets twisted. It gets perverted. And it was this movie uh, that was based on a New York Times article um, about a lawyer in 2016, uh, the lawyer that became DuPont's worst nightmare, a guy named Rob Billet. And he was a corporate defense attorney. He's played by Mark Ruffalo and Hathaway's in the film. Very, very good film. Um, and it's the story of this guy, this lawyer, Rob Billet, uh, who worked for this, I guess, famous firm called Taft Law. And this, this firm they uh, defended chemical companies. And so he's, he's a corporate defense attorney, attorney for chemical companies, and his grandmother sends this rural farmer from West Virginia, a guy named William Tennant, um, up with this giant box of VHS tapes to his office uh, in, I guess it was in, it was in Pittsburgh, I believe, and he drops off all this stuff and basically says, uh, this chemical company that you defend is, is poisoning my cattle and it's poisoning our water and I want you to defend me. I want you to switch sides effectively. And the whole film is about him kind of struggling with this and then coming to, to basically discover that this company that he had been defending, DuPont, had been turning a blind eye for almost 40 years to this chemical that they had been producing and releasing into the water. And it was causing and was proved to be causing, and they knew about it, all these fatal human and animal diseases. It was poisoning the water. It was destroying the environment. And they were sweeping it all under the rug. This is a true story. Sweeping it all under the rug because of the prophet. They didn't want to stop because of money. They were priests of profit, right? Not priests of the people and for the people. And here's their slogan. Here was DuPont's slogan at the time. Better living through chemistry. For who? They were using the power that they had, this unique power that they had, only for their own gain, only for their own profit, rather than for the good of the people that they were created to create chemicals for. It's a powerful picture of what the fall has done to this image-bearing capacity, to this mandate that we've been given to be priests and priestesses, right? In the kingdom of God. It's a powerful picture of what the fall and what sin and evil has done to our capacity to do that. Sin broke our capacity to keep God's call and mandate that was given to Adam and to Eve. It twisted it and it perverted it, but it's not the end of the story, right? God doesn't give up on his plans so easily. (laughs) 
And we should be profoundly grateful for that reality. He doesn't give up on his, on his people. And once again, he vowed right there, right after the fall, I'm going to take what is empty and what is void and what is chaotic, and I'm going to make it beautiful again. And how did he do it? Well, it's the second thing, Christ the Redeemer. He sends the priest that we needed, the priest that Adam was meant to be, the priest that we needed, his son, where Adam failed. And he says this, I'm going to come and I'm going to remake the garden. And that process, we, I mean, we're living in that history right now. That process is obviously taking quite a while. And he sees fit for it to take all the twists and turns that it's taking, right? But he's saying, I'm going to remake that garden and I'm going to start with what broke it. Man and woman were the last thing created in the original creation county. He's saying, I'm going to start with man and woman. I'm going to redeem my sons and daughters and I'm going to make all things new. And right there in Genesis 3, he makes a covenant. It's just one line, Genesis 3.15 with Adam. And he basically says this, I am promising you right now there's a Messiah that is to come. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent that tempted you into sin. And that sin that caused chaos and disorder and disordered your hearts and disordered your affections and disordered your minds so that you would have disproportionate love for created things. You would love the wrong things and overlove the right things. I'm going to come redeem that. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm setting out to again remake my creation. And only I and my power and my ability to speak and to act and to bring forth life, I'm the only one can, who can do it. Right? That's the gospel, y'all. Well, we should drink this down this morning, right? That's the gospel. Not, hey, you broke it. Maybe this is what we're normally used to. You broke it, so you make it right, right? That's the world's economics. It's, the gospel is this. You broke it, and I'll make it right by being broke for you. I'll be the one who is forsaken and cast out of my Father's presence, out of the garden, so that you never again will have to be. And in this very moment, I mean, I know people struggle with like God kicking, kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he, he did it to, to save themselves. I'm, I'm gonna save you guys from yourselves. He's saying, I, I'm gonna set out on this grand, redemptive journey and instead of destroying you right now for your because of your sin I'm going to clothe you and I'm going to start this grand redemptive journey to subdue and to rule over the the world and make it fruitful once again at my own cost and with my own blood it's grace <laughs> right there in the garden after the fall it's grace I'm going to subdue you again with my love. I'm going to rule you and, and have dominion over you with humility. I'm going to serve you long before you serve me, and I'm going to die so that you can live. I'm going to die 
so that now, right now, you and I can actually be priests again. Not one day in heaven, now. I can get my old job back, right? So we get to be priests. Third thing, we the priests. I wrote in my, in my notes, getting priesty with it, right? Like Will Smith. Again, I'm getting, I'm old. You guys probably, half of you probably don't even know who Will Smith is, right? We get to be priests again. We get, we get to pick up our identity again as followers of Christ, as those who are new creations, who have a new heart and who have a new spirit, and we get to live into that identity, Right? Just like our constitution in the United States says, we the people, right? It starts with that. Well, our constitution is this, we the priests. We're the priests. We have a new constitution and we have a new identity because of what Christ has done. But if you're like me, I forget that, right? I struggle to believe that sometimes. I become discouraged, my sin, because I know that my, my flesh is still alive and I, I deal with my sin and my fallenness still. So how do I, I just want to give you a couple practical things. How do I stay in this reality? I'm a priest. Where do we begin? If I'm going to bear his image and I'm going to work in his created world and do and live as he has created me and restored me and redeemed me to do, then how do I do this? And, And this is all I would say to you this morning. Think of it in these terms. My nearness to him is essential. I gotta stay close. Like I worked on a farm for a while. Uh, before I was in ministry, I, I farmed about 2,000 acres and 900 hogs. I would not recommend it. Um, but it's honest living. Uh, but I worked for a guy who owned the farm and every day I would never set out to do what I was gonna do without meeting with him. And I would come and I'd actually come into his presence and we'd sit down and we'd look at everything we were, we were going to do that day, and I would draw near to him in order to actually be a part of what we were going to do that day. I had to draw near, right? My nearness to him was essential to my work. John 15, I'd encourage you to just go read the, at least the first 17 verses, says this, I am the true vine, and my father is what? The gardener. I wonder where he got that. He goes on to say, Every branch he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, I cannot live as the priest that I was designed to be. Right? So I have to draw near to him. Every single day. I have to be, think of it in these terms, I have to be subdued before I'm going to go out and know how to subdue. And what that means literally is I have to submit to his love and experience his love for me. I have to be wooed, right? If I'm going to care for, if I'm going to cultivate and keep, I first must be cared for and cultivated and kept and tended to If I'm going to be about fruitfulness in the world and filling the earth, which is part of the mandate, that's a giving role, then I have to receive and be filled by his grace and his goodness, don't we? 
I have to remain in the vine. I have to be tended. I have to be gardened. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm set free now to go work, tend and garden others and make the grace of the invisible king visible. So just, I'm going to give you five little R words and then I swear I'll stop preaching. This is really good stuff, y'all. Very, very practical. I would encourage you to pray about it. How, how do I remain in him? The first one is this, uh, repent. It's an it's, it's a, it's a old word that needs to be dusted off, right? Repentance. Which ultimately is this, I'm inviting the Lord, I'm going to let you weed the garden of my heart. I'm opening up my heart and my life to you and I'm saying, come in like Psalm 139 and go read the last few verses of that. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, test me, show me offense, lead me. That's repentance. I'm setting down my self-led life and I'm, I'm saying, Lord, lead me now, right? Because if I'm being honest, oftentimes I don't want to be a priest in his kingdom. I want to be president of my world, right? So I have to repent of that. Say, Lord, oh my goodness, my sin always is drawing me back to the center of my life. And if I don't repent, I'm like hard soil. None of you have probably farmed, so you don't understand that, but you can't get a seed into hard soil, Repentance breaks up the soil. It makes it receptive to the truth. And so I can repent, and then I receive his grace and mercy. There's the next R word. And then I'm restored to the joy of my salvation. I, I'm literally replanted with his grace. It's like when you overseed your yard for more grass. Repent, receive, restored, replanted. And then what happens after planting is what? In time, a harvest. I don't know if you ever have somebody who's got a killer garden. You ever have those, those people who walk over and like, dude, I grew like 47 cucumbers. I can't eat any more cucumbers, right? That's what happens when we start doing this, when we remain in him. The fruit that comes out of that, it's more than we can feed on. I've got a whole basket to give you. And it starts with me acknowledging that I need Jesus. You don't need me. You need him. Look at what he's doing for me. Look at what he's done for me. When we repent, we receive, we're restored, we're replanted, and a harvest comes. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you uh, that you are the good gardener that we see uh, here just in the first chapter of the Bible. Such a remarkable picture of our identity uh, that we were made to have and that you've made possible again in Christ. That we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Our, you're, we're your treasured possession, set apart to declare the praises of you. I pray for my friends who are here in this room and I pray for my friends who are watching this on the TV, Lord, uh, that we would come to you, Christ the Redeemer, and that we would learn and lean in and receive and be restored to our identity 
uh, as the priests that we are called to be and that you would send us out into the world desperately in need of people representing the Lord, not just representing themselves or something uh, that they believe can do what only you can do for us. Uh, Set us free now. We love you. Uh, In your name, amen.